I think we select very poorly for people to enter vet school. And I'll tell you why we do that is we actually select for the people who are perfectionists. From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicol. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Saya Clement. Saya graduated from Ontario Veterinary College in Guelph in 1993. During her career, she's worked in emergency medicine and since 2003 has been a co-owner of Carling Animal Hospital in Ottawa, where on top of her clinical caseload, she leads the team and manages the hospital standards of care. Away from practice, Saya is extremely active within the vet community, serving on multiple advisory boards, including those of Vet Alliance and Uncharted Veterinary Conference. More recently, she's begun speaking on the subject of team empowerment, culture, and the art of communication. Now, all of these things are fine accomplishments on their own, but they are not why I was so keen to have her on as a guest. You see, Saya is also a keen musician, playing and helping to run a chamber orchestra in Ottawa called 13 Strings. And it was as I watched her giving a talk entitled Why I Only Hire Artists that my suspicions began to develop that Saya holds within her two seemingly opposed personas, those of the scientist and the artist, and she has found a way to blend both to become something unique. Now, before we jump into the episode, a quick word from our show sponsor, VetX Thrive. If you're working in practice and clients or colleagues are making you miserable, then I have mixed news. The bad news is you're probably the source of your problems. The good news is that you're therefore 100% in control of changing things and having a great career. You are most likely missing some basic life skills and they are not, I repeat, not clinical. Enter VetX Thrive, the place where vets learn these skills and while there are race accredited lessons galore to teach you these skills, those are just the tip of the iceberg because you'll also get action-based toolkits and live mentoring with successful vets to help you improve your game all as part of your subscription. Paul, one of the community members, says joining was the best decision of his life and went from being miserable to being energized and happy in his work. To learn more and get a 10% off your subscription, visit vetxthrive.com and use the promo code podcast at the checkout. Now back to the show. In the years of knowing Sai, I've seen many examples of how her awareness of the practice and precision required to be an accomplished musician has also been applied to the practice of building her career and business. While quiet and humble, she is extremely effective at getting important things done. And as I've gotten to know her better, I realize just how much more there is to come. I hope during this conversation, you get the chance to know this wonderful human being better too. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with the quietly extraordinary Dr. Saya Clement. So welcome to another episode of Blunt Dissection Podcast. I feel like I spend a lot of time in about four cities in the world recording podcasts. This one, I have to say, is my favorite. So we're sat in a nice... I'm going to shout out the Omni Hotel again because they always look after me. And this time I have lucked out in getting a, a suite, which is most unusual. Uh, although the, the view, now I usually describe the view and set the scene, but when we look out the window here, basically it's a naval base and some massive cement works and there's an omnipresent dole pineapple importation vessel that sits there and the bridge over to Coronado Island. So there you go. It's not all glamour and romance when you come to San Diego. So there you go. That's in sunny California again. And... I'm joined today, really excited to be joined today by my guest, who it's safe to say is not from sunny California. <laughs> what temperature is it 
back home for you just now? So I'm trying to do this in Fahrenheit because I'm from Canada. So it's currently 15 below Celsius. So what is that in Fahrenheit? Really like cold. Somewhere so- south of what? 15, I think. You're getting into that area where the numbers start to line up. Yeah, it's, I think it's minus 32 where everything lines up. But yeah, and we've had snow at home a little early this year. So it fell in November. November the 10th was the day we had snow and we got six inches that day. All right. So that voice that you're hearing there is the voice of Sai Clement, who is somebody I've been super excited about. Actually, it's safe to say, right? I am. Um, I'm not sure who's been watching whose career the most here. I have a suspicion there's a there's a bilateral thing occurring. I, I, I can't confirm that, but I can tell you from my end it's true. And somebody I'm excited, I'm excited to have you on the podcast because I think you're a bit different. So often on the podcast, we've got people that lots of people might know. And today it's really exciting because I think you're somebody that lots of people should know. And I don't know if you're comfortable with that. Again, I have a suspicion the answer might not be yes. But you're interesting. And the reason I think you're a bit different. And here's where I'm going to start with this. I'm actually going to start with a bit of a quote from, I don't know if you said it or if you just wrote it. And so you described saying, you know, if you, you said, if you'd asked me at the beginning of my career why I wanted to become a veterinarian, you'd have given the cliched answer, I love animals. And with the wisdom of many years in practice, it now means you can honestly say that you love problem solving. So there's number one. I don't think that's what sets you apart, though. I wonder if there's something deeper than that, and you can shoot this down in the flame. So I'm going to start off this interview by asking you a bit of a left-field question, Sai, and that is, are you a veterinarian or are you an artist? I am a veterinarian who could very easily have been an artist. And... That's the quote, by the way, was actually written by me. That's from my bio on my clinic webpage. So thank you very much for stocking that. But we do a good job in stocking our guests here. Yeah, I should have known because I suspect you probably don't do anything by halves anyway. So I was, not that you can tell from my last name, which is my married name, but I'm Japanese Canadian by birth. So I was born in Ottawa. And when you grow up Asian, you know, the, I tell people to read the book, The Joy Luck Club. Or the other option is um, Tales of an Asian Tiger Mother, because both of those actually describe my life very, very well. And everybody's very much obligated to learn a musical instrument or do something artistic, because not because they want you to be a musician, but because it helps you to learn math, and they, they understand the science behind that. So I took piano lessons all the way through grade school and high school, and was very proficient at it, and managed to pass very high-level exams with a minimum of practice. If I had actually decided that I'd wanted to be a musician, I probably could have done it, but I needed to practice more than 45 minutes a day <laughs> because I was just far more interested in doing all this other stuff. I was going to ask you, were you interested in it? Because and I'll, I'll give you a tiny bit of backdrop to the story. I imagine you play multiple instruments. Okay, so I know you play violin. No, not the violin. That's my kid. That's your kid? What? Yeah. Okay. Piano for sure. Okay, so piano. I was made to play, and I... I was made. I did not wish to play. So this is a Scottish upbringing. Made to play violin. And I hated every second of it. And then I was made to play piano. And I hated every second of it. Did you, with your, because it it sounds like it was a more enforced thing for you as well. 
for completely different reasons, I think. I think mine was to stop me, you know, scrapping in the street more than anything else. So I'm fascinated to hear about the link with maths. But did you enjoy that? I did, actually. And I think I was incredibly blessed to have a teacher who understood me incredibly well. So this was a a person who mentored me all the way through, you know, every single bad thing that could have happened in my life. Not that there was much of that. But she was, and, and this is funny, I say this to people all the time and they laugh at me, but she was a, a member of the Grey Nuns in uh, Ottawa. And this is not someone that you normally think of as being, you know, a really kind or nurturing person. But she was amazing. And I treasured every single lesson I had with her because she not only taught me the piano, but she taught me the music theory part as well, which was not very common. Like normally when you take piano lessons and you need to learn all that other stuff to pass exams like history and theory and harmony and all that stuff you go to a separate teacher for that. But she taught me everything. And so this was a very formative person in my life. I was one of the very last students that she actually had before retiring from teaching. So she was quite, she was elderly by the time uh, I left and went to high school. So what I appreciated very much was the relationship I had with her. And I was actually, it was fun to be able to play the piano because you can actually then turn around and when they make you play an instrument at school, which is not the piano, you're actually very good at it because you can already read music and you can hear. Yeah. So I played the flute. I do have a ukulele at home, which I am picking away on right now because I bought it for one of my children who no longer plays it. And I have this absolute loathing of the fact this instrument is sitting in my house and no one's using it. So I am learning to play the ukulele and that's it's that that's a great instrument though because it's one you literally can't make it sound bad like it's tuned the way it's tuned you can't make the thing sound horrible doesn't matter where you put your fingers down no okay well maybe you can make it sound pretty bad oh all right now i play guitar so the, the flip side of the years of not enjoying music was when i finally found something i liked and picked it up i adored it and it was the opposite. I was made to, this probably won't come as a terrible surprise for you to hear this, but I was made to learn sheet music and I disliked that intensely. And I picked up guitar and I just self-taught through listening to the, the notes and the sounds and it became a very much more organic process where I explored it a bit more. Where my brain goes to here is, it sounds like there's a lot of metaphors for learning and development that is worth settling on. And my first add-on question for you is, what made your music teacher such a good mentor? What made her such a good teacher? Have you been able to reflect and identify what those things were? Wow. Okay. So don't get me wrong on this. She was strict and she was very much insistent of there was consequence to action, which was, if you don't practice, I am going to know, which I think every single music teacher on the face of the Being, planet and does And they are all a bit scary. They have to be a little scary because otherwise you wouldn't practice, right? Because you figure, oh, I'm so good at this, I can get away with, you know. And as I alluded to before, I did get away with a lot because I was literally not practicing anywhere near as much what someone should have been doing. I think at that age they or that level, they normally say, yeah, it's two to three hours a day. And it's what she taught me, though, and the, the way that I actually, the one thing I actually learned from her was don't practice what you're good at. Practice what you're bad at. So instead of taking this piece, which is 15 minutes long, which you know you have to learn, there's always parts of it that are easy. And then there's the part that you go along and you're merrily playing along and then you grind to this like ridiculous halt because it's hard. So what she taught me was you play into it and you play out of it because you already know the parts around it. Right. So and that's actually one of the really cool things because she actually would say stuff like that to me about school. Learn the part you don't know. 
because I would walk in and go and she would ask how my week was. And I would say, I have a chemistry test tomorrow. And she would say, well, what part don't you know? And I'm going, well, all of it. And she's going, well, I'm sure that's not true. And, and it was this little, but we had this wonderful relationship where she kind of intuitively knew there would be days that I wasn't going to be 100%. And she was very, I think she was just very aware. I think that's the other really cool thing. I, I, people like that who kind of come into your life, I think are very aware of the other person. And so I knew very little about her, but she knew everything about me. And so she had this amazing interest in everything else that I was doing. So I was riding horses at that point, And I was, you know, playing in the school band, and I was fairly involved at school and lots of stuff. And so she was always interested in me. And I think that was a nice thing, because sometimes you lose that a little bit, and you're going in and it's like, why didn't you practice as opposed to well, how did your week go? Because that's how she used to always start. And she used to say, because she was teaching me both, theory as well as the piano, she would say, which one do you want to start with this week? What's going to make more sense for you to start with this week? Or is there something that you really need to work on? Or are you having trouble? And I still have, um, it's funny you mentioned, I still have the little, because she used to give, she, we used to have this little notepad, and she would date it every week. And she would write down, here's what you're to practice for the following week. And my mom, who moved into a condo a few years ago, when she was packing up all this stuff, came across this box full of these things. And so it started off as her handwriting and then it progressed through to mine because she would be, you know, she would say, I want you to write this down so you remember. And so it, and so it was kind of funny to walk through. And I, at the same time, mom also found all my old music books. So I'm now packing through all this music that I actually learned. And, and uh, you know, some of the scores are like $1.75 a piece as opposed to the, you know, $50 that I'm paying now, but which tells you how long ago I studied. But that's who she was. And that's, she was a very formative person for me. You instantly, as you're talking, that's revealing other parts of the person that I have observed and, and know. So it sounds like she had a pretty big influence on you. Take us back. So fill in some of the some of the gaps here, because we've jumped straight into you know a, a kind of a question that's utterly not event re- related, which, which I think is why it's very interesting. But but there's more to the question than just the musical background. You know, I get the sense of the way that you do your work, whether that's veterinary or whether that's uh, your music or whether that's more recently your speaking. There's the sense of the virtuoso about what you're doing. And, and by that, I mean, like just that sense that there's nothing that's by accident or is, is not practiced or is done to a high level of precision with intent to execute something in, in the work you're doing. And when I meet people, I don't mean this to sound as if it's a... There's two kinds of entrepreneurs that I can see in the world. There's the people who want to scale and get big, and they're the people that make the headlines. And rightly or wrongly, and I'm not saying that's good or bad, but I think there's a whole other group of entrepreneurs who I've become much more interested in, principally because I think it's the camp I think I'm from, who are almost the art who see the beauty of something they can craft and create and, and almost alchemy of a kind. But it's not about the size, it's about the quality. It's the restaurateur who gets that five-star restaurant who doesn't need to put them on TV or have them in every massive hotel around the world. They've got their one thing and it's their art and they show up. Speak to that. Am I miles off of the mark here or? No, you're not miles off. So just to give everybody some background here, I have a single practice. I own a single practice uh, with a marvelous, marvelous business partner who 
facilitates me going to conferences and things like that. So I shout out to him because I could not do what I do without his support. He allows me to kind of drive where the practice goes. And so without him, it wouldn't be where it is. Because he's the one who also does the brunt of the like, yes, we're going to go into an exam room and here's how we're going to do this properly. So it's a five doctor practice. We may grow it to six, but then at that point, I'm going to stop because we've had a larger cohort of veterinarians in the past and it doesn't work for us because we can't manage it the way we want it to be. We have a very strong niche of who we are and what we want with practice. And so did we look at developing it with a bit of We are going to be the best practice in the entire city in this particular niche. Yes, we did. Tell us a little more more about the niche. So the niche. Not to distract. Yeah, and the niche is actually. So basically, I read this really cool book once, and it's called A Category of One. And I can't even remember who wrote the darn thing now. But if you ever go looking for it, it's got a, a cover that's got a whole bunch of green apples and a red one in the middle. And so basically, what they talked about, or what the author talked about, was. You want to make sure that you are so good at what you do that you become your own category. So our niche is we want to build relationships with our clients. That is actually what our mission statement or what our, our motto says is building relationships through compassionate care. Every single thing we do in the practice pushes towards that. You notice there's nothing about quality of medicine. There is nothing about, and in fact, our core values, which we revisit once a year, uh, and I know you're big on this too. But we just redid them because we thought, oh, it's time to kind of look at how do we keep updating and how do we keep pushing forward? So we still keep the building relationships. And so for us, the most key thing, we want the relationships with the people. We want them to come in and we want them to say, hey, where's Jane? She's not at the front desk today. And we go, oh, well, she's on holiday. And they go, oh, cool. Where does she go? Like you have the conversations like this all the time. And it makes practice so rewarding, like to go in and actually know People who look at my records laugh because I actually go in and I have um, little screen notes. And most times we write down things like the dog bites or, you know, whatever. I write down where the dog's name came from or the cat's name or the gerbil's name. Like I see a lot of small exotic patients and I love those appointments, right? These are people that don't get service anywhere else with rather than with us. And, And it's because we walk in and we go... That is the best guinea pig I have ever seen in my life. And I truly mean it. I, uh, you know, if a kid who's allergic to them, I would have millions of them otherwise. <laughs> You'd be like the, ho- the Tribble home. I like- would have Tribble. <laughs> I would have guinea pigs tribbled all over my house. Um, my husband would probably leave me at that point. But, but yeah, so we are so interested in the relationship that people have with their pets. And we want to try and prolong that. So as long and as well as we can, that's what drives me in the business. My business partner will also tell you that for me, the financial part is his, like, I am his worst nightmare when it comes to, when it comes to the money. I'm very glad he's there. And I have other really smart people that I have purposely hired to do what I'm really bad at, which is not spend money when I shouldn't, because I'm the one who's going to go. So, you know, I'm at the conference, I'm going to go to the exhibit hall tomorrow. I'm the... Takes the credit card off. I am. Yeah, they, they don't let me take the credit card to the conference anymore, but... You know, like I would be buying a laser and I would be buying all this stuff and anything that's new and shiny, I'm all over that. You and I should never go to the conference exhibit floor together. Precisely. It would be a disaster. Precisely. But it would be a very great fun disaster. The vendors would love us. They would. But I get that sense. Yeah. But anyway, so to go back to everything I have always done. So again, grew up with two Asian parents. My parents both survived the Second World War. And my dad's family moved to Vancouver 
or Richmond. Where in Japan were they? So my mom's family was in Tokyo, and my dad grew up in the country. So he was in a smaller area called Okayama. So his family had actually already immigrated to Canada um, before the start of the war. Yep. And they had a fishing boat, and they lived in Richmond, and, you know, it was the kind of the stereotypical Japanese-Canadian story. Well, so what happened was my parents are incredibly private, and so what happened was I didn't actually hear this story until I was maybe in my 30s. But my dad's family was split up during the war. So he and my grandmother had gone back to Japan, and that was when Pearl Harbor happened. So there was no way they were coming back to Canada. So they ended up staying there for the duration of the war. And my grandfather, who hadn't gone back, was in an internment camp, lost everything, you know. And so it wasn't just in the States that there were these camps. There there were some in Canada, and it's not something that we're incredibly proud of, but it happened. And so their family was reunited after 12 years. And rebuilt everything. My mom immigrated from Japan in 1968. And so they met in Richmond, and then they moved to Ottawa, which is where they kind of stayed put. But there's this concept that doesn't translate really well from Japanese to English. I'm going to apologize right now to anyone who speaks fluent Japanese, because I'm going to just kind of make a total hash of this, because my Japanese is appropriate for home use, but not out in public. But gambare is this, and like I say, it doesn't translate well, but basically it means try hard, do the best with what you're given. So my husband works with an NGO, which was responsible for being one of the first people boots on the ground after the tidal wave hit Fukushima. Yep. And I said it to him after he came home. And I said, look, you know, that's probably the only country that could have withstood that particular disaster because of that particular ethic. So basically what it means, though, is do your very best. Don't settle but also don't feel a victim of what goes on around you. And this was bashed into my head from the time I was like, probably old enough to walk. And I spoke Japanese for the first four years of my life before I went to school and then promptly, you know, lost all of it. So I think part of that is, I have a very, very, my kids say I don't do stupid well, and that's not quite it. What, what? I really like that. I, I, yeah, I really don't. Uh, no, what I don't do well is lack of common sense. And what I don't do especially well, what I really hate actually, is people who feel victims of their surroundings Mm. because it is such a foreign thing to me and I don't understand it. I try my very, very hardest to understand why people would feel this way. And yet I sit down and I look at them and I say, you're like, you're so lucky. How can you not see that? Yes, there's bad stuff happening, but there are really, really amazing, awesome things in your life. I don't know, maybe there are people that get so desperate that they can't see that. And that's hard for me. Like, I, I don't think, I mean, there's lots of crazy stuff that's happened in my you know, journey where I probably could have gotten pretty despondent about stuff. And I choose to kind of shove that stuff aside, which may be a, you know, a comment as far as therapy requirements later. But It's coming, it's coming back. It's going to come back, back. <laughs> yeah. Like when I'm 85, it's going to come back to haunt me. We could turn this into now. So, so, so how do you feel about that? Let's not do that. I'm, I'm so not a qualified I was going to say, and, and I don't think I can take you seriously if you do that. <laughs> so basically what it is, is make the best of what you can do. And then there's also the whole Asian upbringing thing, which is you come home from school with a mark of 95 on a math test. And the, it was not, wow, that's great. It was what happened to the other 5%. And that was my father almost always, who I adore, who I adored as a kid. And he was the most amazing human being he was so kind and gentle and um anyway so he would say that and I would go like I would do the typical teenage thing and go stomp off to my room and slam the door 
I think that what he was actually trying to say was, what did you learn? Like the the mark of 95 wasn't really what he was worried about. It was, did I actually understand what I hadn't gotten right? And that's something that I've only kind of come to grips with probably in the last few years. There's a concept that my kids tell me about, which is called Asian failing, mm. which is when you come home from school with anything less than about an 85 on a test. And I've never done that to them, thankfully. I like to think I haven't done that to them. I'm sure they're both going to be shouting as they listen to this. But I think part of it is we do try to adopt this whole concept of growth mindset, which is something that I'm very, very impassioned about because we can do our lot to ourselves where we say, I'm so bad at this, I'm never going to be good at it. And you can change that by using one word, which is yet. I am not good at this yet. And we all grew up with phenomenal capacity for growth. None of us would have learned to speak. None of us would have learned to walk if we hadn't been willing to make a mistake and fall down and then turn around and say, that didn't work. I'm going to do it again. And so the practice has grown to where it is because I made a lot of mistakes along the way and I would sit down and say, okay, well, that didn't work. How would I do that better? Your background sounds like the perfect breeding ground for perfectionism, which I think cripples so many people. We're getting to the real, the real nub of why I really wanted to have this interview. And that is that, so you graduated the same year I went to vet school. So 1993, right? And if I'm getting any of these facts wrong, no, you're correct right. them. You opened up your practice 2000, or you bought into the partnership, is that 2003? Yes. Okay. That was a, a minor, per, like a minor partnership. Yep. And then full on five years after that, we had purchased out our major okay. partners. So yeah. So your timelines and if, if you're graduating then, then, you know, you're, you know, five years further into your career than me. When you look at what's happening in the industry just now, and you look at the attrition rates, and hard to verify these numbers, of course, nobody's done any really, really solid research. But the, the data looks like when people are getting to that three, certainly by that five-year period, the percentage of people who are disenfranchised with their career is about it's at least 50%. That's what we're hearing. And certainly the surveys I have done suggest that number might be more when you compare that to the level of engagement let's call that engagement right when you compare that to the level of engagement in industries generally looking at gallup surveys you know you you look at the number of people who are unsatisfied it's about 20 percent. so it's much much higher yet here we are sat on a couch you and i and i think we share a common love for what we've done you are still in practice you're still at the coalface, after 26 years? Yeah, wow, pulled that out. And you've got a broad, like you can't see the broadest grin that Sai has on her face right now, but you can tell, you exude warmth, energy. You're still going to show up tomorrow with the same passion that you had yesterday. How have you managed to do that? And when you look, think of your backgrounds, that sort of, it sounds like, you know, Asian failing sounds like another way. It sounds like a way of saying perfectionism differently to me. So how have you moved from that, which seems to cripple, you know, perfectionism, a lack of resilience, fear, all seem to be things that cripple this generation of vets and cause them an awful lot of anxiety, stress and burnout. 
you sound like you've come from an, an ex, you know, not not an, perhaps an extreme version of that. Yet here you are, happy, look like you're loving what you're doing, and don't look like you're ready to stop this anytime soon. So how is that? How does that work for you in your experience? And not not to say that you have a band aid for everything, but just describe how how this journey's been for you. So I would say actually. That's where music comes in, and that's where riding horses comes in, and that's where learning to play soccer comes in, or any of those things that I loved doing, but I wasn't necessarily brilliantly good at. Football, I guess you would call it, right? Right. So you look at what happens when you play an instrument, and if you are in the kind of family I was in, you competed at music festivals, you took exams, you do all of those things. And Sometimes you just do brilliantly well, and sometimes it just all works, and it's great, and you get to say, look at that, I did great. What a good teacher does for you when you don't do well is rips the thing apart and says, here is, because my, my teacher used to go with me to every single competition and watch and listen and take notes, and I would go back and we would talk about it, and what she would do would be to say, this part was great, this part was brilliant. What happened here? Tell me what you were thinking. And I would say, oh, I had a memory lapse or it was that one thing that I, I got in my head and I thought it was the, you know, for, I forgot music all the time. Like it was, I have a really good memory, but I would literally get up there and just, you know, be this total deer in the headlights. So she would work through all those things and she would say, all right, so how would you fix that for next time? And I think we also, so here's now me standing on my soapbox very, very firmly. Go I think... It we select very poorly for people to enter vet school. And I'll tell you why we do that is we actually select for the people who are perfectionists. So when you have someone who is used to being told, oh, you are so smart, I'll never be able to do what you can do because it's just born in you, or any of those other things that we say to people that we see as being incredibly talented, like, oh, you're so talented, I'll never be able to do that. Well, the actual truth of the matter is, is that you can teach yourself to do anything. And I'm going to tell you something which will make many of my colleagues laugh, which is that I'm incredibly shy, very introverted. I have to go home and if my kids want pizza for dinner, I actually hand them my phone and I say, order it off Uber Eats so I don't have to call anybody and you go down and get the stuff from the pizza guy. I actually love talking to people, but I need that time to. So what I actually... What I actually learned when I was in something that I liked doing. So horseback riding for me was not something that came easily. You know, I worked like a dog at it because I loved it. But I was never going to be someone to go to the Olympics, nor did I have a parent who could bankroll me to that extent. But, you know, I went and I had fun and I fell off and, and all of those things. And yet I loved it so much that I was willing to get back on and try again when it didn't work. So we create this scenario in vet school where we say to people, you're so talented. You are the smartest, most talented bunch of students that we can find. You interviewed well. Man, do we ever set those guys up for failure. Totally set them up for failure. Because what we don't do is say to them, great, now you're here. Now you have to learn all over again how to be bad at something, right? You have to learn how to recover from being bad at something. And I think the faster we can teach people how to be bad at something and get better, that's when the job satisfaction is going to go away. And the problem is there's a huge emotional cost to that, right? If you make a mistake as a veterinarian, 
or as a technician or as a front office team member, any of those things, those could be life-threatening for someone's pet. And that's hard. How do you rebound from that? How do you rebound from an anesthetic death? How do you, you know, so I think that we just as a profession have to start really thinking about what is it that we're selecting for? If it were me, I, I mean, and you know this, I look at people's resumes now when they apply because I have a lot of people that do want to work for me. But when I look at their resumes, I'm looking for one of three things. I'm looking for someone who was a member of the school band or school orchestra, did the play, was in a musical, performing at a high high level of athletics, also does the same thing because those are people who are coachable. Those are people who have learned how to make a mistake and bounce back from it because you are talking about people who are resilience. And I think We've cut the arts out of schools in Canada. I, I suspect the same thing's happening in England from what I see from all of the people I follow over there. I think we do ourselves such a huge disservice because it is not just about teaching music. It's about teaching how to recover from failure. And if we could teach every single veterinarian in the world how to recover from failure, we would not have an epidemic of mental stress and illness and higher levels of suicide in the profession. I, I firmly believe that. So there are so many directions to ping off on this one. I'm going to pick up on, and I, and I wonder if you can share some specific instances of times where I would like you to model out your journey to resilience. Because there's no way you can get to, and, and actually I'm going to pause myself there because I dislike the word resilience on its own. It's become this, anything that becomes a buzzword to me, I'm instantly revulsed by and and so mindfulness resilience on their own I, I i don't see them as useful islands you know an island doesn't save you if your ship wrecks you just starve or you know drown or, or dehydrate get eaten by a shark you've got yeah right and there needs more and so i would love it if you would share a specific experience where you failed and failed your way to success and then perhaps we can move the conversation over to examples of how you take what you learn and you are now able to, because creating that safe space for failure within a high pressure environment, this is what I spoke with with squadron leader Tim Davis in the Royal Air Force, creating high performance environments where people are safe to learn is a difficult thing to do at the best of times. But when you're putting in a raw ingredient that, that instantly rebounds off of that failure like it's a wall not that there's a you know they don't look up they just see the bricks in front of them and fall in the heap so it'd be great if you could model out some of your journey and what that looked like for you if there's a specific example and then bring it into the vet clinic okay so i'm going to use a vet clinic example for this because it's probably the most telling one you and i met when was that the very second cvc i think 2012 yeah so i was at a conference medical conference And I'd had a very nasty experience myself of having done what I call a clinic drive-by. And if you don't know what that is... (laughs) Now I'm fascinated. It's when as the owner of the practice, you decide that you just don't want to go into work that day. And so if you look at where my clinic's located, it's not an easy thing to drive by my hospital and then get back to it. You have to... It takes about five minutes to go around the block. So this this was actually me really concerned about a certain individual who worked for me at that time. I, it got so bad that I would literally walk up to the door and it would I'd put my hand on the door handle and I would go like, oh, something just happened in there and I'm not really sure I want to go in. 
So I drove by my clinic. And so that that was hard. I drove by my clinic because I had a real massive cultural problem in the hospital, which thankfully is now no longer the case, except on those odd occasions where I fall off the wagon because everybody else is awesome. (laughs) So what happened was I went to a conference and I said, okay, rather than going to learn about cats with diabetes and, you know, liver disease and eyes and all that stuff again, I'm going to start to go to a management lecture and see what, what comes of it. And funny enough, that was the time, that was the first time I met you and Andy Rourke because you were doing a a lecture called Management Mojitos or something. And I thought, okay, well, if I had to go, I'm at least going to drink and it'll be fine. And I remember you had a swear jar on your lectern at that time because (laughs) that was that part of your life. Anyway, and I remember walking out of there going, huh, so this is what it means to actually, and I don't think it was anything dramatic. Like, I, I think you were talking about toxicity or something. I can't remember what it was, but... I walked out of there and I thought, huh, so there is actually a way to learn to do this, right? Because that was the thing is they don't teach you this stuff in vet school. And that's actually kind of now progressed to is every time I think I saw you and Andy for about three years after that, I'd walk up to you and say like, hey, this is what I did. What do I do now? So <laughs> yes, I have followed your career. And I suspect that's the reason you know about mine is because I would walk up and just kind of dump stuff at the end of the lecture. <laughs> and uh, and that was obviously too before Andy and you were both so popular that you could actually walk up to you guys <laughs> at the end of a lecture and have a conversation. But I think the the really strange thing then is that You develop what you want in your practice and you say, I don't want this anymore. I want people who see my vision. I want people who are focused enough that they can implement the vision. I want that. So that's what we kind of gradually built to. So what then happened was I had a couple of people tell me, you know, this is not normal. And I, because I'm I'm thinking like, oh yeah, this is a problem everybody's got. This is why there's so many lectures on it. So it must be fixable, right? And I had so many people say to me, this is not fixable. This is not, you're never going to be able to fix that. And I mean, I made lots of mistakes along the way. Like I went, I actually inadvertently turned every single team member off of me going to conferences for about a year because I came home and fired three people within two weeks. And it was very bad because then they all thought every time I was going away, I was going to come back and fire someone. But what it then turned into was this really neat thing for me, which was, well, if I can do this, me, the shy one, Everyone else has to be able to do this too. So what's kind of grown out of that is me saying, hey, you know, like it doesn't have to be this way. It really doesn't. We have a new grad who just started with us and she's a rock star. Like she's just a rock star. And we we interviewed a couple of people and we had, if you haven't, by the way, I'm just going to put in a shameless plug right now. If you haven't heard Dave talk about how to write a job advertisement and also how to interview people, you need to do that because it actually does work. Because we, we put out our job ad And it was very specific. It was incredibly culturally related. And what I said in it at one point, which my partner made me scratch, was if you want to know what equipment we have, just read everybody else's ad. And he said, you can't write that. (laughs) I love it. And I said, yeah, yeah, I can. Because the person that we want to hire is going to understand that. They're going to understand that we're on par with everybody else. And so when you start to, you start to find joy in practice again, when you have people around you that think like you. What were the the things, do you care to expand on some of the things that people said you would never be able to fix? And then how did you go about resetting that culture? Recruitment is obviously one of the ways, but how did you bed in this new culture? Because you, and let me repay that very kind thing that you said, you don't struggle to recruit people. No, 
I don't. Right. In, in a time when conference after conference after conference, I speak to rooms full of people, and I ask them, what's your number one problem? Hiring staff, which is not true. It's retaining good staff, but it shows up as hiring staff. How long has it taken you to recruit? And the answer is anywhere from six months to never. And it must be averaging nine to 15 months for practices. Yet here you are, an island of excellence, not struggling at all. But you've come from a place where people were telling you this wasn't fixable. So what was the this, in inverted commas? How did you fix it? And what do you do now to maintain that? Because this isn't a recent thing for you either. So I started off fixing me. Leadership is a really brutal thing. It, it Everything rolls down. You know this. Yeah. I am nothing if not incredibly blunt sometimes. I have a very fiery temper when it comes to things that I think people should know how to do. Dave, by the way, for because you can't see him, is laughing because he and I are very similar. It's a annoying laugh. <laughs> High standards, I like to call it. But basically what it is, is that because leadership determines how a practice works, you have to be willing as a leader to take the full responsibility of the fact that everything that happens there, including the culture, comes from you. So the very first thing I had to do was change me, which trust me was about a three year work in progress. And it was awful. And it's still not 100% right. I have a lot more awareness of it. I have people now in the clinic who help me and say, hey, you're like flying off the rails. Do you want to calm down? Can they, I ask you a question? Out of cur- yeah. I mean, all of my questions are curiosity. I'm curious. Who's the person that is your antenna? The person who's the barometer from when you're about to slip off the rails? I'll tell you why. Because I have a, an I, interesting story I have story about, about five of them. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a lot of antennas. Is- well, no, because... So, so just to kind of go back to why I have... I yes. actually have my entire team of them, truthfully. What's written down now for us is a code of culture. And that's something we instituted probably about, you know, this was before it was cool. Like we actually had one about seven years ago. And it started off, we pulled it off the code of culture of all things for the Holiday Inn. And theirs was frightening and it had come from the Midwest United States somewhere. And so there was things in there about you will not show up with a firearm or things like that. So we, we kind of edited it down, but it was huge when we first started. And so it's gotten a lot more concise and it's a lot more pointed now. But basically what it is, is the code of culture says that this is how we are expected to behave. The person who does not speak to the fact that there has been a cultural breach is equally culpable as the person who did it. So while I joke and say there's five people, there's actually a whole team of people who are supposed to go ahead and call this out. Now, there's also a uh, what I call a get out of jail free card, which is that if you do not feel comfortable approaching the owner because she's losing her mind right now, then you can go to a manager. But you're obligated to do that. It's the first thing we onboard after health and safety, actually, is that document. Everything that we do falls back to that. When you spoke to the client like that, how did it let down the code of culture that we have in the practice? When you did not call someone out for being rude, how did it? So, but truthfully, I have I have two managers who are amazing human beings who keep me on the straight and narrow fairly. Like all they need to do is to kind of throw me a look and I'm going, oh crap, I did it again. So there's that. I have one barometer up front at my front desk who's incredibly, incredibly good at knowing as I walk in the door that something is wrong. And she'll just throw a, hey, how's it going? And it's just, she's like infectious. She's got this thing and you go, oh, okay. So she's talking to me like that. Then I'm not, I'm not on my game. 
I have one technician that I work with very, very closely who is incredibly good at keeping me on track during appointments where if I'm kind of getting in the weeds a bit and getting, you know, I'm rolling my eyes a bit, she'll say, come on, come on, got three more to go and that's it. And I have one of the other doctors who's very good at, at spotting that in me as well. So those are the core group of five, but it, it is actually, it falls to the team to do that. So I'm getting elements of, you know, you've built good people around you. Let's talk a bit more about that in a second. You've made it clear your expectations of what behavior, good behavior looks like. And there has to be an accountability element to that. Feedback is something people struggle with. There's no good practice that operates without there being a feedback mechanism. What are your tips? Like, how do you go about giving good feedback? How does that work in your practice? And and perhaps asking you that, I don't just mean you, because no practice functions unless multiple people can do that. But it's a it's a dreadfully hard thing to get right. And done wrong, it can kind of cause problems. Was that part of your transition from we can't fix this to this is amazing? So what they told me I couldn't fix was toxicity. What they said was totally unfixable was toxicity because it was everywhere. And I said, well, yeah, but I have this group of people and most of them aren't. So the problem is, is and I have a very, very good friend in Canada who has a job description for the worst employee in his office. And what he says is, every so often I fire the person who's in that job description. And then every so often, like, and he's been actually really good about having it not get refilled again for the last year and a bit. But what he said was, I hope to God that I never have to fill that position ever again. He says, but somebody usually rises to it. So there's part of part of that thing, you get rid of the bully in your house, and then somebody else quite often jumps up and does it. But when we talk about trying to, to get rid of toxicity in the practice, again, it's modeling. And then, so I did it myself for a while. And then I brought in a few key people. So we basically had a management team who was very, very much morally and ethically stupendously better at this than me. So the feedback then comes from those people who never lose their temper or get stupid about stuff. So you ha- they have emotional intelligence. They have more than emotional intelligence. I think that, and both of these ladies that currently fill that role in the practice, one of them has worked for me since she was not, actually she worked for the practice before she worked for me because we were hired at the same time. So she's been, she's actually six months earlier than I was in the practice because she started there as a high school student. She's worked every single job in that clinic with the exception of a, you know, a registered technician or a or veterinarian. I have no doubt she could probably do my job from time to time if yeah. I were sick. She developed through the practice. And then the second person who's in a managerial place who, who manages team members is a um, is someone who started with us as a client care rep, so our rep receptionist. But then she progressed through purchasing and then she progressed through being our training, our lead trainer. And then she said she was leaving and went away to go and took an education degree. So she has a teacher's degree. And she came back and I said, look, I don't want to lose you as soon as the you know, the school board has an opening, what's it going to take? And she said, well, this is what I kind of am aspiring to. And I said, here's how you need to develop. And so she went away and did that and had went off on mat leave. And, you know, and this is a person I would, I, I would stand upside down and kill to keep in my practice. So those are the two people who handle feedback. And I think they both have a very strong sense of fairness. 
So there's this little mantra we use in the clinic all the time, fair, firm, friendly. If you cannot provide feedback using those three things, you shouldn't do it. We also don't give feedback based on one-sided stories. So if someone says, well, so-and-so did this, we go and find out what so-and-so actually thinks happened. And quite often it's a huge misunderstanding that something that one person has done has been taken totally out of context or has been blown completely out of proportion by the receiving person. And I think feedback itself has a bad connotation, right? As soon as you say feedback, everyone thinks it's bad feedback. Right. People, they immediately go, is it negative or yeah. critical? Yeah. Like, yeah. No. Uh, and we can't even say, can I talk to you for a second? Or at least I can't, because that usually implies, oh, I've got something bad to tell you. So I, I'm now thinking about that because that's something I've done for years. And yeah. I'm now starting to think about positive reinforcement for, can I talk to you for a second? And then we also have a... This was a recent thing. There's a stuffed unicorn on one of the um, on one of my manager's desks, and it's called Eunice the unicorn. And she's meant to, it's actually a dog toy. She's got a squeaker in her belly, and she's meant as a an emotional support stuffy for when they have to have these conversations. So they literally Can we have go, a chat. And somebody squeak, pretty much. <laughs> so they it's like carrying a bagpipe under your arm. So they they take the emotional support unicorn in with them in the meeting. And I hope to get to a point where we don't have to do that. And, we're, and and truthfully, we have, those two ladies do reviews now. And for the most part, the team are looking forward to their reviews. They want to know what's going on. And we don't, you know, we don't dissect small minutia. We don't even call them reviews anymore. We call them uh, planning sessions. Yep. Because the goal is, I don't look back. Yep. I never look back. And we're always pushing forward. What can we do better? Where are we going? Um, because looking where you came from doesn't do anything for you. And it just kind of reinforces that you did some bad stuff. Yep. And not interested in that. Yep. Agree 100% there. Okay, let's just... I want to... I think we could talk about culture for a very, very long time. And sadly, I don't have you for for a very, very long time. So maybe just as part of that, I didn't want to gloss, move on before, before sort of just dwelling on because I don't know the absolute specifics of your recruitment process, but anybody who's got a support unicorn is going to have an interesting recruitment process. So you've alluded to looking at the resume for evidence of some musical involvement as a proxy for somebody who will have been beat up a little bit in life and learn how to progress in spite of that. Talk us through what you, some of the things that you do. I think people get overwhelmed by a lot of stuff. So perhaps, how do you, again, your role modeling? I think you're a great role model. So how do how can people improve their recruitment process, as the way you see it in their practices? So I think if you have a firm idea of what the culture is that you're looking for, we hire for culture. And anyone who has heard me speak has heard me say, I can teach a high school student to spay a cat. I can teach the right high school student to spay a cat. And not that I would do that, but you understand the theory behind that, which yeah. is someone with the right attitude and the right mindset and the right personality is going to excel in our practice. And I tell people all the time, we're incredibly difficult to work for, really high standards. Like just the fact that we have really good culture does not mean our standards are incredibly high. My CSRs or CCRs do far more on the front desk with triage and all of those things on the phone with clients. I back them up all the time too, right? So you're looking for someone who has a really special skill set. The last time we advertised for a client care rep, I actually told my one manager, take the name of the business out of the ad. 
So I said to them, I want to find someone who says I'm people oriented. I'm driven to succeed and be, you know, beyond my game. I love talking to people. I thrive in a fast paced environment. And then we had them send a thing to an, an unidentified box number. And we got a whole slew of people who basically fit the thing. And then they found out it was a vet hospital. And they were like, oh, my gosh, this is my dream job. Anyway, and even with that, though, we make mistakes. We don't make final decisions on people for at least a few months after they've been with us because the onboarding that we have is also pretty intense. Like it's it's not something that we don't onboard. We don't onboard in like two days and then throw them to the wolves. So it's all about when we say there's going to be support afterwards, we actually do hopefully provide that. I'm just, you know, and I'm, I'm constantly, we're constantly watching for that, right? Because we go, right. oh, big hole in that person's education. Where did we drop the ball? Okay, so let me pause you there. So stepwise, what are the hoops you make somebody jump through to get onto your ship? Onto my ship. Well, first of all, they have to answer the ad. Yep. We have them send, we wait to see if they answer the way we want them to, which is we say, send us your CV and we want a cover letter. Okay. We're looking for details in the cover letter because we want to know that they spell my name right or they spell my partner's name right. They get the name of the animal hospital correct. Not they don't, to whom it may concern. Precisely. There cannot be spelling mistakes in there. I know that, that like, that's a pet peeve of mine, but truthfully, they're going to be writing in my medical records. They need to be able to spell or at very least know enough they got to put the stupid thing through a spell checker. Like I want, I want them to be able to do that. I want them not to call it a veterinarian hospital. <laughs> <laughs> check <laughs> i am looking for precision we yep. look for precision in that yep then we we send an email to them to invite them for a phone interview so they 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 email us back to schedule a phone interview and then they do a phone interview with one of the managers and if they can't get through that we don't hire them yep um, or we don't bring them in if they get through that and they qualify for an, an interview then we we do bring them in and i i don't do any kind of testing before that, because again, as I say, I'm more interested in the culture, so I don't really care what their skill set is. Yep. If they can catheterize a six-week-old dehydrated kitten with fleas, I actually don't care. Well, I care a little bit, but I don't. It doesn't right mean off the bat. Not it does it's, exactly right, but and and quite often, I hate to say it, the people that are incredibly competent like that quite often are. I have a distinct preference actually for people who haven't been in the profession for a long time because I think they get really jaded by being in the wrong practice um, mm. before they come to us. And so then what we do is we bring them in, they have an interview, and I know if they've been in there longer than about 20 or 30 minutes, then I'm going to pop my head in. And the reason for that is I pop my head in and I literally say hello, and I'm there for about a minute and a half. And the reason I do that is because they need to be able to do that with one of my clients in a minute and a half. So if they can impress me in a minute and a half, I'm going to be okay with what they're going to do in front of one of the clients. And then they Do, do you prompt a question to them or? Nope. Nope, you just say hi. I just walk in and I say, hi, how is it going? Yeah. Because I, I throw I throw a slightly open-ended question at them because I want them to come up with something more than good. Yeah. And then I'll ask them if they have any specific questions for me. And um, the ones that engage me are going to come across pretty high on the list. I know that they've then qualified for that because they go on a tour of the hospital. If they don't go on a tour, they didn't make it. I've just been reading this book and you just reminded me of this. And it was it's a guy and it was a sales culture. So it's a super strong sales driven culture. Maybe you've read this. And he said his the, the guy's in it was the shortest interview. He said the guy's question in the interview was, what would you do if I punched you in the face now? And he sat down and the guy who he'd interviewed thought about it and he said, because that's a confronting question to get asked fairly aggressively in a, somebody you've just met. 
and he said, are you testing my interview skills and sales skills or are you testing my courage? And the guy said, well, it's, your, it's for you to decide. And he said, well, my answer is you better put me down in that hit because I'm going to come after you. And he said, you're hired. Because he was wanted drive, he wanted courage, he wanted, and in that. Now, I'm not saying that's how I would recommend hiring, but not for in, what we need people right, to do, right? But it's it's knowing what you need and building a process to fit that. That's what you're doing there. Which and I then love. we will bring them in for a working interview because the other thing that we will do is have them come in for a couple of hours and they spend time with our team members because the team members know what we need and we've had many of them tell us, "Yeah, don't do it," and we go, "But," and they go, "No." <laughs> and we go, all right, are you just being pissy today? Or like, you know, because I think this person's okay. And they'll come up with actually something really specific usually, which yeah. is like, this is what happened in this situation. So, so long as you know that that's what happened, go ahead and hire them and just watch for it kind of thing, right? So that's what we do. We don't advertise a lot because we actually, we advertise two positions primarily in the hospital. Our vet assistants who are our kennel attendants and and assist you know vets as well as the technicians and then we also interview csrs mm. the vet assistant program or position is our entry-level position and yep. we pick people there who we actually think about being able to cross train to work on the desk mm-hmm. because quite often as soon as they learn all the husbandry stuff then and they show that they're like you know ready to grow and move on being a vet assistant can sometimes be a bit of a dead-end job unless you're going to be the lead or, or whatever. So we want to push. We want them to grow. We want them to... So we don't hire vet assistants who are, you know, shrinking violets. We hire ones who are going to talk to people and who are willing to talk to people. We're very, very fortunate because we have a local college where there's also there's a vet assistant program as well as a uh, registered vet tech program. So we take students from those programs all the time because we know... There is a certain amount of attrition and people go on mat leave and all those things. And I'm in Canada. So you've got to guarantee someone their job back up, up so anywhere from 12 to 18 months. Yep. So we know we're always going to be looking for people. So we actually, I think the last three or four kennel attendant VAs we've had go through that co-op program. We offer them a job before they, before they leave. And we've hired most of the technicians that come to us. So now as a result, the vet college or the, the college sends us the very best person they can possibly send us because they know if we like them, they're going to probably be employed. So I haven't had to really advertise for a technician for a really long time. We will also choose to wait for the right person. So the last veterinarian we hired, we worked short for about eight months because I was waiting. <laughs> and then um, we had a few hoops we had to jump through and and I kept telling them, no, you got to wait. You got to wait. I'm not, no, I'm not hiring a warm body. We are going to, and and they are all actually very good about that. No, they understand that hiring the wrong person makes life much worse. Okay. So It risks going back to toxic. Well, and for us, the wrong person is just someone who's maybe going to get overwhelmed and who's not going to be happy. And I, I never want someone working for me to be unhappy or feeling like they're a fish out of water. Because like I say, we're hard practice to work for. For the right person, though, it's a really fun place to work. It's a fun place, yeah. yeah. So just coming back, because I think I did my typical ask a question and possibly interrupt you. Give me five things. And that's an arbitrary number. You don't have to choose five. It can be three, two, one. But it's just coming back to your being happy. You're not being burned out. You're having the energy. So you've had those moments in your career as a leader, the drive-by. Here we are, you're happy. So 
what tips can you give to, and this is not just for practice owners, this is for veterinarians and whatever role that they're there. What advice would you give to anybody listening who not necessarily is in a bad state, but you know, there's obviously the rescue and then there's maintenance for where you're in a challenging time. Do you have specific rescue remedies and then maintenance programs that you you know conduct on yourself to keep yourself in this sweet spot that you found? Yeah, so I think anybody who knows me I, knows me quite well. And, and the fact that I've actually been in this practice as long as I have is like bizarre to them all. And I think it's partially because I've always had something to work on. So for me, it's about change and growth. And I think if you try and do the same thing over and over and over again, and not do something different, you are eventually going to just get burnt out because you're sick and tired of bored. it. So, well, yeah, and some people don't get bored. You know, I have a couple people who don't get bored in my life. And you know, they eat the same thing for lunch every day and they, they're they very happy doing the same thing over and over and, and it's just the consistency that they love. And I'm, I'm okay with that for them. Um, that would make me crazy. It does, actually. So I went from being an associate to being an ER doctor for a few years, which was like, you know, the adrenaline junkie part of me. <laughs> I then was also, I was also a locum, so a relief vet at the same time. So I would go from my night job to working days and then sleep for six hours and go back to my night job. So it was a little silly. And I, I graduated from vet school really young, like I was 23 when I graduated, which I tell people all the time probably is a little too young to be a doctor. I did wear a white coat for the entirety of the first 10 years I was in practice because people would literally look by me and say like, when's the doctor coming in? <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> So, and part of it was also physical presence in the room, which is a hard thing to teach somebody, yeah. particularly someone who's shy, who's in introverted and book smart. So had to learn how to do that. And it was a game, like it's a big game for me, right? So I think finding the game that keeps you engaged is what's important. For some of us, it's how many times can I get this owner to do exactly the right thing for the pet? I have another game, which I do on the way home every night because... I don't do well when I've had a really bad adverse thing happen. So I had a really good friend who's a speaker in Canada tell me, the reason why this works, you go to the movies, right? And you go and you watch, well, I don't go to these movies, but you go to a movie where there's an, a guy with a you know hockey mask on and a chainsaw and he's coming after you in the cabin. <laughs> and guess what? Your heart rate goes up. Your cortisol level is through the ceiling. I'm willing to bet you have never been chased by a serial murderer through the woods, but does that ever induce the same response? So when we go home at the end of the day and relive that horrible thing that happened, client yelled at me, it releases all of that same stuff all over again. And if you relive it six or seven times, guess what? You relive that horrible experience, everything that goes on with it, all of the nasty biochemical stuff that happens every single time you do it. So I choose now to stand at the door of the practice, and I'm not allowed to leave. I told myself I don't leave unless as I'm walking out, I can think of the three really good things that happened that day. And sometimes it's actually, that was a really good euthanasia, right? Because if you have a chance to listen to Mary Gardner, holy moly, does that ever make that, that for me, if I manage to do that super well in a day, that is actually one of the things that I will use on the way out the door. I made a difference today. And you have to do three because it outweighs the one God horrid thing that happened, right? So you do three of them. And if you can walk out of the clinic every single day, think about those three things, you'll be okay. 
And that's where I find joy. Because sometimes the three things have nothing to do with veterinary medicine. Sometimes it's, hey, I had a colleague email me because they were in the weeds and they didn't know how to fix a problem and I helped them. Sometimes it's, we hired a new person today and that's going to be really cool. Sometimes it's, I managed to buy a piece of equipment today and Keith didn't yell at me. (laughs) um, But we won't talk about the dental x-ray machine I just bought. But anyway, it is about, there is joy and there always is joy. And you just have to be willing to look for it. And you have to be willing to accept that that should be the thing that rules your life. And that's, that's where positivity for me comes from. That's the positive psychology there for sure. Okay, so I think let's move on to the short form questions. I've been dreading these, you know that. (laughs) Well, I'll try not to ask you any mean ones if I possibly, I don't think I ever ask mean ones. No, I don't think you do, but I I wouldn't put it past you to do it once. You should see what I've got written down here. They're okay. No, I'm joking. I'm kidding you. All right. So what's the thing you do better than anybody else? What's your superpower? Two things. I actually counsel euthanasia really, really well. If someone's having trouble with that, that is my thing. What do you say when you're doing that? I think it's it's not what I say. It's the response to the owner. So if the owner comes in and you can tell they're worried and you know it's the right thing for the pet... You have to make it okay. You have to make it okay and say, yeah, you know what? This is awful, but this is the right decision for Fluffy and this is the right decision for your family. I talk about caregiver fatigue a lot. Um, I went through that with my father uh, at the end of his life because he he was ill and he had Parkinson's, which is a horrible disease and it robs you of so much. And that kind, generous, wonderful human being was not my dad at the end of his life. And that was that was hard. But I know about caregiver fatigue. I watched my mother live through that. And um, and so I tell people there's two qualities of life. It's the pets and the owners. And that's definitely for Mary. But I think that to be able to do that part of our job so well is the best thing that we can do for people. It is the last memory that they have of their pet. And we should be able to do that well and not be afraid of it. And death is something that we dread maybe. I think at the end of the day, if I can kind of say I did death well, I'm, I'm, I'm quite okay with that. You know, I, I like to hope that we've created a place that people feel safe to work and people feel safe that they can come in and challenge and, and grow to who they are. Now, what's on the flip side of that? What's your kryptonite? I, like I say, I have a very, very short fuse when it comes to stuff I think people should know. I clamp down on that a lot. I think... Just, I'm a magpie. I'm so distractible. I have all kinds of things in place now. You'd be actually very proud of me because my phone no longer has alerts on it at all. So I get distracted by so much. That's probably the bigger thing. And then I turn around and get yanked off into eight different directions of all these different things. And, And so my management team tells me three projects at a time, write the rest down, we will get to them later. But that's my kryptonite. I, I, I get very dispersed on stuff. All right, here's a new one that I'm just going to toss in there. And this idea comes from, and I'm going to give a shout out, add props to Chris Brogan, who is an earlier guest, who actually I interviewed not far from here. So thank you for this idea, Chris, and also for being the wonderful human being you are. Chris has a thing, and he's doing it now, so if you, you know, follow him on Instagram, and I think it's Chris.Brogan. I might just have totally butchered that, but... You can always edit that in I can always edit it or put a link in the show notes. Chris will put another link in the show notes if I mess that up. But Chris does this thing where he's got three words 
every year. And, and they serve as his three focuses that can move him, the ball for him as he sees it further up the park. And I was thinking about, I messaged him and told him, you know, sort of an, an accountability moment. I said, okay, here are my three words for the year. So if you had to choose three words, and it doesn't have to be for the year, but if you had to choose three words that future casting, right, let's not look back in the past, but what three words do you want next year to be about? For me? Yeah, and why? So self-regulation. You just raised your eyebrows at that one. No, I was, no, I was just, I put the hyphen in mentally, so it's okay, that's one. That's one. <laughs> that was just me, like, editing. <laughs> <laughs> wow, goals for me, or words for me. Happiness and compassion are the three words I would use. And why? Compassion is, I'm going to start at that one because it kind of pushes through all the other stuff. But compassion for me is something, if, if you ask me that question actually in five or ten years, I suspect it will still always be there. That's, that's, and I do my best to be compassionate. And I'm not always that fantastic at it. Probably the best, you know, example of that is when I'm trying to deal with my children, one of whom is a teenager, and that's been a bit of a nightmare. And I'm now starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel on that one. So compassion for that child is is so critical for me right now. Self-regulation, that's, that's something where I kind of hope that I don't ever have to have someone say to me, hey, you're being an idiot. And, and I... <laughs> that might be where we differ. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I aspire to being better in that because I'm not really terrific at it sometimes. And I know it's because I have other stuff happening in my life and I know I have other pressures going on and all of the, and I can rationalize that till I'm blue in the face. But ultimately what it boils down to is for me to be the person that I know I can be, I have to have that. And happy, well, just because everyone should be. All right, maybe my two favorite questions. So what's the best piece of advice you've ever given or received? So the best piece of advice, there's been lots. I think though... It was actually, funny enough, it's a piece of advice that came out of a book I was reading, which maybe isn't the answer you want, but too bad. And, and it was written by a math professor at the University of Toronto, and it's about luck. And his absolute, total, complete belief in the fact that there is no such thing as good or bad luck. And so you don't end up where you are in life because you happen to be lucky. So what I tell people all the time is to make your own luck. And to do that, you need to be very willing to say, I'm going to take a bit of a leap here, and it maybe it's going to not work. And there's that growth mindset thing. Because if you're not willing to try, well, actually, you're never going to fail if you don't try, right? So it's safe to do that. You'll never be wrong. You'll never make a mistake. But I think for us to grow and to be who we really truly should be, got to sometimes be willing to take a bit of a leap of faith on it. And so I would say, make your own luck. How do you make your own luck? Do you have any sense of that? How does that how does that show up for you? What do you do you do you do things to cultivate that? Yeah, I push outside my comfort zone a lot. So I, I talk to people when I wouldn't you know, like if I were out in a social situation, my ideal thing is to kind of say, Yeah, okay. Can't <laughs> like please don't tell anyone. Like I tell my husband this all the time, please don't tell anyone I'm a veterinarian. Like <laughs> <laughs> Do you sometimes tell them you're something different? 
No, never. If I, if someone asks me what I what I do, I tell them because I also had uh, don't lie kind of burned into my head as a kid, and that is that is something that that's that's another kryptonite one for me for sure. But yeah. but I think that making your own luck means being aware of who people are, and not necessarily thinking, well, what can that person do for me, but you know, well, I think we're recording this podcast because of something very similar to that, right? And I, and you had asked me if I was willing to do something for you for VEDX. And I said, yeah, but I want you to record a podcast. And I went and, and just because, you know, the introvert should do that. But I think it is about being aware of what's going on around you and being aware that there is opportunity everywhere. And you might not think it's an opportunity. But then three years later, you're going to realize, oh, that person I met at this gathering is someone that's important so people say to me all the time you know everybody and I actually cultivate that a little bit I think that having lots of resources around means that you can create luck because you have then the people that you can go to talk to when you actually need them and vice versa I am very 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 much someone who if I have a skill that I can offer and help someone with I will absolutely do that and it's never it's never with the intent of it has the side effect of them also being willing to help me, but it's never with that intent. I don't do it as a cultivated thing of, oh, yeah, so you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of thing. I think it's just about being a generous human being. I think that's what we should be doing. Helping others. Yes. And what's the worst piece of advice you've ever received or given, depending how much you want to fess up? Um, oh, I've given lots of bad advice. Um, Maybe that's a, that's a different podcast. Yeah, it? exactly. Terrible advice podcast. Um, terrible advice podcast. You Someone can probably, else can have that one. Yeah, I, that will not be mine. Thanks. The worst piece of advice I got was actually from my dad, which was, I really don't think you should be a veterinarian. And why don't you want to be a real doctor was the second half of that. I think bad advice just comes from people not understanding. I think... We are so quick, like, you know, when you have those conversations and someone's telling you the problem and you're going like, oh, 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 I have the answer to that. And you're not listening to what they're actually saying. It's such a boy thing, isn't it? Well, no, it's a, it's it's a problem solver vet thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's a problem solver vet thing, right? So I try to fix my teenager all the time and maybe that's not such a good thing. That probably was the worst thing. Like I, having said that, if I had done what he had wanted me to do, I would have gone to med school and I probably would have been a pediatrician, which is essentially the same thing as being right, a vet. Right. Except, you know, the kids bite more, apparently, according to my friend. No. Yeah, apparently. Children bite a lot when they're between the ages of 18 months and three years old. And so my friend, the pe- pediatrician, has been bitten far more times than I have in my career. That's surely just clumsy on the uh, I don't know. I told him like your reflexes how's should it? be like pretty bad. How's, how's, how's a child Mostly faster on the sh- than a, on the okay. shoulder? He says like they oh. literally like, you feel <laughs> That's like a little zombie baby yeah, just exactly. gnawing on them. He <laughs> says he he'll pick them up to it's, put them on the table and they'll oh, just yeah, chomp on his faster arm. Than a Jack Russell Terrier, that, but yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah, like, but we're I not guess cuddling the angry Jack Russell yeah, Terrier, are we? Right? Yeah, you wouldn't hold the Jack Russell <laughs> yeah. up next to your face. You had any favorite books? What's the most influential book you've read in the last six months? Okay. I read a lot. This one I read more than six months ago. This one I read like several years ago. Go for it. Every single human being on the face of the planet should read the book called Mindset by Carol Dweck. This is the book that actually is the definitive work about what's known as fixed mindset and growth mindset and how those two things exist in all people. This is a concept that's now being introduced at school 
to help kids learn when they're having difficulty and how to overcome adversity. I would put that on the required reading list for a veterinary school, quite honestly, in first year somewhere, because that's what teaches us how it's okay to fail. That's probably my favorite, favorite book of all time, actually. Do you like, as a follow on from that, and probably heavily influenced by that, Matthew Said's book, Bounce? Yeah. Yeah. I like that one. Um, so he's a table tennis player. Right. I, what I actually liked is the conversation in that book about his coach who basically made him practice over and over and over again until he had muscle memory so that everything was automatic so that when he needed to then make a change, he could do it because he knew he was only changing one thing at a time. Mm. And that's, yeah, that was, I actually just read that book on the plane coming back from Kansas City actually and it was a it was a that one's a nice one it's a very easy read yeah. it's a really quick read yeah and then I guess I'm a science fiction buff actually so <gasps> Go on, so yeah so if I had to you know my favorite science fiction book is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy excellent um I am a rabid Doctor Who fanatic as you are very much aware I have a sonic screwdriver did I tell you the story that I, I put a sonic screwdriver into my recruitment process? Yeah, I know. And that's, I thought it was Did brilliant. I show that video? I remember, the, um, I remember the one lecture set that I went with with you about writing job advertisements, the very first one. <laughs> and I think you put up a composite photo of three different Doctor Whos. And I'm sitting in the room. In the, it was in the States. So I'm going like, oh, my know, God. Like you're like the only other person who so knows what So I'm you doing. said, okay, no one's going to know who this is. And I'm going, oh, yeah, yeah, I do absolutely know who that is <laughs> and he says well who is it and i said well i think it's i think you'd had three of them right like tenant was yep. in there and, and was, matt smith was in there and anyway and so i was laughing and and then you put the job advert up and i'm going holy smokes if i lived where you did i would so be applying for a job at this clinic but that's and i mean i'm waiting for star wars to come out and i'm waiting for the like 20th eight, eight days yeah exactly and i am like you know Battlestar galactica and all of those things right New one or old one? Both. I watched the old... Okay, so as I age myself completely, <laughs> I watched the old series on TV when it first aired. And I remember watching the old Doctor Who's. So when they re, when yep. they, when they did the new ones, it was just like, oh, this is like better than Christmas. So yep. so yeah, that that's, that's a big one for me. But I think that and I'm an escape room junkie. So that's something else that... There's a growth thing that there's a you you'd better That's be problem solver growth. Oh, and, failure. Oh, failure and how you rebound from failure, like <laughs> and stress. Oh, oh yeah, and how well you practice or how well you operate under and all of that. Communicate as a team. Yeah, and I have I've now gotten to the point though where I don't actually do them with people I don't know because I have two distinct teams at home, and this comes this is knowledge that you get after doing about eighty of these things. But I have um, my family team goes by the name of we didn't kill each other and um and so we basically everybody on in the family has a role in an escape room which is really funny to me but there's my younger child is the one who finds stuff in rooms because there's always puzzle pieces scattered around and all the rest of us are so busy running around trying to solve stuff like mad that that particular kid is the one who's going through and going like oh yeah i should maybe pick up this puzzle piece and take it to the table and they'll figure it out later and then I've got my, you know, my older kid who's like intense, right? She's more intense than I am in these things. And she's been known to shout and get rather heated about us being stupid and, and things. But she's such a clever, clever person that 
you kind of forgive everything. And it's just, it, the communication is what I love because they tell you when you first do these things that you've got to be able to communicate. And literally what normally happens is everybody goes in and just shuts up and does what they're doing. And it's a good, you know, it's a good thing to come back to for veterinary medicine, right? We, we, we tell everybody what we need to hear and what, what we're doing and it simplifies things. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think it just kind of, it, I, it just buys into every single little push button I have to do these things, but spend an inordinate amount of money on having, you know, having experience like that. All right. Last second to last question. Uh, if you could give yourself one piece of advice back in 1993, graduation day, and you can pop out of the TARDIS, your time machine, and just go, Psst, come here, I've got something for you. Yeah. What would you say? Calm down. Totally calm down. Just calm down. Because you got this. I remember being really nervous and not realizing that the book smarts that I had were going to translate whatsoever to what I could actually do in an exam room. And I had, you know, the typical experience, right? I, I got into the practice. I had an owner on site for two months and then they left. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I have, no good. yeah, but I had two really phenomenal other vets in that practice who were really awesome mentors who basically talked me through lots and my agreement with myself at that point was I had to stay calm enough so that I would remember what they told me as opposed to panicking all the time and my goal is always to be told something that I'm doing wrong once and hopefully not have it happen again <laughs> so but yeah stay calm and basically that you have it you really do you're an incredibly accomplished person. You're one of a very select minority of people that made it into the program. Like you are, you are pretty awesome. So now keep going. You got this. Okay, last question. And now I get the sense that perhaps you're not as on the interwebs as somebody is addictively on it as me sometimes. What's your social media weapon of choice if you had one? You are on Twitter a little bit, or you used to be. Uh, yeah, from that not le- so much. a long time ago. Yeah, not so much. I think, yeah, it's because you made me get a Twitter account, actually. I know, I, I probably more recently told you to stop doing all of that as well. Yeah, I actually have stopped doing most of that. My social media stuff, so I'll be very frank, I have lots of people that sign me up for things on Facebook, and I pretty much jump off of them right away. As I said, I can't stand victim all I can't stand people being the victim and I also cannot stand the venting that goes on online. It is so, so toxic. Unproductive. Yeah. And I absolutely refuse to to listen to it. I absolutely refuse to tolerate it. I will call people out on it all the time, so I'm not really a great one on those types of boards, but the problem with venting is that we if you're venting about a problem, I'm okay with it, right? Like if you say, don't you just hate it when someone comes in and this is this happens and I don't have a solution, how do I fix it? Totally cool with that, right? Totally cool with the fact that someone's asking for help on how to fix something they don't have to fix. I have no patience whatsoever for someone who says, this just happened and this owner's so stupid and here's the review they posted and what am I supposed to do now? It's like, answer it? Like, yeah, you know, right. Really? Feel like, it. Like, just tell them that, you know, and that's my, that's my solution for negative reviews online is, is to say, hey, listen, we're really sorry you had a bad experience. Could you please get in touch with us? Yep. Don't try and make them wrong online. No one wants to be wrong. <laughs> yeah, that, and then they're like, people are going to come out of the woodwork and you'll never be, win that you d- You'll never win that. So that's a very long circum- circuitous route for me to say. It is because of my question. Oh, sorry. You said what you're going to say. 
I'm on Facebook a little bit. Okay. I have an Instagram account, which I put up pictures of my dog and food as opposed to veterinary stuff. Got and it. And that's about it. Which one do you use the most? Um, or none of the above? None of the above. Like, right, I, I'll make this easier then. Yeah. You can text every phone in the whole world now, right? Okay. You can do it. You've got the magic power. Oh, great. What message would you like to appear in all of our phones? I would say read and understand Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. <laughs> Seriously, I would, because I don't think anybody on the planet doesn't benefit from that. And I would say find the positive in your life. I love it. So for anybody who wishes to get in touch, and I strongly encourage you guys to just, I think you would do an awful, awful lot worse to find a role model of the quality and caring and giving and successful nature that Sai has. And so you can go to, basically you can chase her around the internet a little bit, but probably one of the the best things you can do is go check out the practice website. And so the address that you would do that is going to be, Carl, uh, correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, so carlinganimalhospital.com. That is correct. And is there anywhere else that people, you know, is a good place to reach out to you to show you some love? The best way, actually, the clinic has a um, Facebook page as well, too, which is one that we actually spend a lot of time doing fun stuff on as opposed to anything really heavy. And... Um, you know, we'll throw up costumed pets at Halloween and things like that. But that's that's actually a, usually a really nice place to catch me too because um, the person who runs that actually forwards all that stuff to me and that's that's actually the easiest way to, to catch all me. All right, so facebook.com forward slash Carling Animal Hospital. Sai, thank you so much for the time we spent. I've really, I've loved every second of this conversation. If I were looking for a job... I would apply to your practice in a heartbeat. It sounds like a wonderful place. You're a wonderful person. And it's one of the privileges of doing this podcast is I get to meet so many phenomenally talented people and I just get to view up close the rich tapestry that we have. And it, it always makes me feel good about the space we're in. So thank you for being such a positive part of it. Thank you. That's my absolute pleasure. Just before you jump away, a word of thanks to my guest. Wasn't she awesome? Don't forget to share her some love on the socials. Other things you can do. If you're enjoying the podcast, please, please, please share the episodes with your friends. Tell people about Blunt Dissection. And it really helps if you leave a review on iTunes. I love to read them. It gives me great feedback and I love it. And the last thing is don't forget to check out VetX Thrive. If you're a vet, if you would like some help with the non-clinical skills in your career... VetX Thrive is there for you. So until next time, my friends, for me, a blunt dissection, be safe, be well, and be happy. Dr. Dave, out. This episode of Blunt Dissection is dedicated to an amazing human being who I was fortunate enough to, to meet, to be taught by, to be inspired by to be mentored by, and to befriend. John Sheridan passed away last weekend, and John, your loss will be keenly felt throughout the entire veterinary community. We've really lost one of our best today. But what a life, what a full life. 
and what a life of contribution to your community, to your family, to everybody around you, to the practices that you helped through the decades. Uh, you really are somebody for whom the word legend is absolutely correct. Uh, John Sheridan, the high priest of veterinary business management. Fare you well, sir. Enjoy your rest. You absolutely learned it. And uh, above all else, thank you. <laughs>